To God, I thank you so much for this day to worship you, to bring our praises to your throne, to express our hearts, and uh, just to think about your great love for us. Lord, we thank you for this Sabbath day of rest, that we can just enjoy you and adore you and praise you. I pray this morning, Lord, that you would just illuminate our hearts, that you would open our eyes to see you, to see the world around us in the way that you see it, that you would correct our understanding of you and our correct our understanding of ourselves. I pray this morning, Lord, that you allow your word to speak to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. My name is Greg Finley, and I'm actually the missionary in residence here at Rock Point. So I just want to introduce myself to you. Uh, In 2005, there was a group of French scientists who were actually uh, tasked to study a group of grasshoppers. Now, these grasshoppers had this really strange behavior. Uh, As they would hop around in the grass, they would uh, look for something specific. It was a pool of water. Now, if you know anything about grasshoppers, which I don't assume that you do, uh, grasshoppers can't swim. But this group of grasshoppers would just relentlessly look for water. They'd leap and leap and leap and leap and leap till they find it, and they would jump straight into the water and drown. And time and time again, these grasshoppers were leaping and leaping, looking for water, jumping straight into the water and drowning. And so these, these scientists were tasked to find out why these grasshoppers would have this behavior. Why would they kind of have this self-destructive behavior, which most grasshoppers didn't have? And so as the French scientists began to set up their equipment, they had some lights at night so they could watch them, because in the morning about 100 grasshoppers would be in this small pool of water they had. They shined the lights on these grasshoppers, and sure enough, uh, about the time the sun would go down, these grasshoppers would be just simply leaping their way all the way to the pool of water, and they would crash into the water. And as they watched what happened to the grasshoppers next, They were shocked and amazed, and they began to find the reason why these grasshoppers were engaging in this self-destructive behavior. Now, I'm going to pause the story right here, and I'll fill you in on the details a bit later on. But what we're going to do this morning is we're going to act just like those French scientists. But we're not going to be studying grasshoppers, but we're going to look at ourselves. That there is a certain behavior that a lot of us engage in that is just simply self-destructive. Now, the interesting thing is, uh, it really undermines our spiritual life in a very, very vital way. But what's most surprising is that the Bible has virtually nothing to say about it, at least specifically. The Bible really doesn't even mention it at all, because this behavior that we typically engage in as Christians uh, simply hasn't been around for very long. In fact, this behavior that I'm going to talk about has really only been around for a little over 100 years. Um... And, uh, but most of us are probably very aware of it, even though the Bible only mentions it specifically one time. So what is this behavior? Well, I think the best way to describe it is the way that I first discovered about this behavior. Uh, my wife and I, uh, a few years ago, uh, moved to Oxford, England. And in Oxford, uh, the city, the way it's set up, is it's very difficult to drive around in a car. Matter of fact, the fastest way around the city is by bicycle. Uh, the second fastest way is by walking. Uh, the third is by bus and on and on until you get down to the car, which is last. And so when we moved there, we didn't really see a very big need for a car. So we actually lived about two years without a car, which was the first time in our entire lives that we never owned a vehicle and just walked everywhere we wanted to go. What happened, though, was actually kind of surprising to us. You know, a car is usually a time-saving device. helps you to save time by getting there much more quickly. But what we began to discover is that we had more time without a car than we actually did have with it. Because the car, or a lack of a car, 
kind of forced us to make decisions about how we'd spend our time. I studied about one mile away from where we lived. My wife uh, also worked about a mile away. And so we'd get up in the morning and we'd walk together to go to work, go to school. Uh, and then we'd walk, walk home at the end of the day. And that time of walking was an incredibly rich time for us together. We got to talk about uh, things that were going on. At the end of the day, my wife had a, a frustration. She was kind of in customer service. You know, she'd kind of be able to emote and let me know how it was going. But by the time we met it to our flat, our apartment where we were living, uh, you know, we kind of had it all behind us. And so it was this great time to fellowship with one another. But another interesting thing, too, was when we attended services at our church. Our, serv- our church was probably about a half a mile away. We'd wake up in the morning, go attend the service. And when we walk home, it was a time really just to kind of reflect on what the service was about, how God may have been speaking to us. And we can have these just very rich conversations by simply having the, the slow pace of walking. Now, you may have already gathered what this behavior is that threatens our spiritual life. And it is the behavior of hurried and being rushed, of being constantly busy and dashing from here and there, filling our schedules so full that it's almost hard to even think about what's going on. We're just simply thinking about the next behavior ahead of us. And I I will challenge you to realize that this is probably one of the biggest threats to our spiritual life, that the richness we can have with our relationship with God can easily be undermined by this hastiness, this busyness, and this hurry. And so we want to look a little bit and see what the Bible has to say about this hasty and busyness and to see how it can truly be destructive to us. Uh, We can think of busyness or hastiness as kind of like having the same effects on us as intoxication. Uh, If you've ever known or seen anyone who has drank just a little bit too much alcohol, you'll notice there's several effects that come up on them. Uh, One of the things we notice is that their judgment is impaired. Uh, that they're unable to really think clearly or make decisions. And, of course, we have DWI laws that prevent people from driving a car when they're drunk, right? Because they just simply uh, can't react quickly. And hurriness and busyness really has this same effect on us. Harvard University, back in 1973, did a study, what they call the Good Samaritan Experiment. And what they wanted to experiment with is to see how hurriness and busyness would affect a person. So what they did is they went to a local seminary, Princeton Theological Seminary, and they basically hired a a, a huge score of seminary students to preach a sermon. They wanted them to preach basically a a three to five minute sermon on the parable of the Good Samaritan. And if you're not aware, the parable of the Good Samaritan is basically a parable that teaches us the importance of helping people in need. And so, as you may guess how psychologists uh, think, they put a little twist in it. What they decided to do is they would hire these students and they'd have them come to the building, the psychology building. And when the students arrived, they'd say, oh, well, actually the venue has changed. We want you to deliver your, your five-minute sermon, but it'll be in this uh, nearby building. And so what they did is they had a guy who posed as if he needed medical help. So he was sitting on the side of the sidewalk, kind of coughing and groaning. And they wanted to see whether these, uh, these uh, seminary students who are about to preach a sermon on the importance of helping people in need where they actually help someone on the way to teaching their sermon, right? So as the students arrived, they would say, oh, well, actually, the, ser- the venue has changed. You need to move to the next building. And time and time again, these students would come by and pass this guy in need. Now, of all the students that particip- participated in this study, 63% of the students helped the person who was in need. They offered him some help, asked him if he needed assistance, and was able to do so. Now, that may not sound very high, 
But one thing very interesting was when they changed the experiment slightly, what they did next was that as the student, as the seminary student arrived, they said, well, the venue has changed, but unfortunately you're about two minutes late and you're going to have to hurry over to deliver your sermon. And of course, there's this guy sitting there groaning and <coughs> coughing in need of help. What do you think the seminary students' reactions were? As all these seminary students passed by, only 10% stopped to help them on their way to give this great sermon on the importance of helping people in need. What does this teach us about? Yeah. Uh, in fact, even some of the students actually physically stepped over the individual in order to go you know, teach their sermon, right? Because the hurriness kind of impaired their judgment. They weren't able to think clearly, you know, I'm actually teaching a sermon about helping people in need and I'm not going to help someone in need, right? So you can think of this hurry in some ways. It's kind of like lowering our IQ. Uh, because we're in a hurry, we don't consider all the options available to us. Hurry begins to keep us from thinking clearly about what we truly should do and what is proper and right to do. <clears throat> so the first reason or the first way we see that hurry is much like intoxication is that it impairs our judgment. It basically ratchets down our IQ a few notches. And we're not able to make decisions clearly like we should. But the second way that uh, hurry and busyness is much like intoxication is that hurry and busyness kind of numbs us. We don't really feel as much. Now, I'm not going to cite an experiment here to kind of prove this to you, but I want you to engage in an experiment here. Now, I'm going to count to three. I'm going to count very slowly. One, two, three. And I'm going to say, listen. And now what I want you to do is listen as carefully as you can, and I want to see whether you notice something, all right? So whether you're young or old or whoever you are, we'll just see who's able to notice it. So on the count of three, I'll say listen, and you listen very carefully. Ready? One, two, three, listen. Now what I want you to notice is your body posture. What were you doing when I said listen? When you want to listen very carefully, you're completely motionless. As I looked around the room, I don't care if you're young or old or who you are, every single person here had stopped their activity. And able to, to be able to listen carefully, we must be motionless. The psalm says, to be still and know that I am God. Now, one of the ways that hurry and activity kind of undermines us is that we're less likely to be able to listen. Have you ever attempted to talk to someone who is in a hurry? You know, they're just kind of everywhere, uh, and you can't, they don't really pay attention to who you are or what you're doing or what you're saying, and they may not pick up every word you say as well. And so when we are in a hurry and constantly have this as a pat regular pattern of our life, we're unable to listen. Now, God enjoys speaking to us. He enjoys us praying to him and listening to us, but he also enjoys speaking to us as well. But when, 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 worry or, uh, when hurry and busyness is a regular pattern of our life, we miss many opportunities to listen carefully to what God has to say to us. So we see here that hurry and busyness impairs our judgment. It's like ratcheting down our IQ. Uh, the hurry and, and, and uh, uh, busyness also numbs us as well. And so sometimes because hurry and busyness has these qualities of intoxication that some people actually use busyness as a way of escape. You think about a person who has maybe experienced some great grief, maybe a loss of a loved one. The pain that they feel in their heart, and when they begin to think about this great loss, sometimes they just simply want to, to get rid of it and, 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 and numb it. 
Um, and so oftentimes, the people use activity and busyness. They just kind of stay busy with things because, first of all, it keeps them from having to think about it. It impairs their judgment. They just simply want to get it out of their mind. But secondly, it numbs them as well. They no longer feel the pain or the grief that they, that they have just experienced. And the same as some people kind of drown their sorrows in alcohol, other people can drown the way that they're feeling in busyness and hurry. But as we know, that alcohol is definitely not the solution. The hurry and the busyness of life simply covers up the problems that we have. It may not simply be grief. We may have this vague sense that we are wasting our lives and we're not of value. So oftentimes we'll fill our life with many activities and many commitments just to kind of make us feel better. And we no longer think about it and uh, we'll no, no longer have to feel that pain of being valueless. So we can see that busyness and hurry can be a, a bad solution to the problems of our heart and kind of lead us astray. Now, you may be asking yourself, well, am I really a busy person? Uh, am I hurried? Am I feeling the effects? You know, the same as alcohol, this busyness and hurry. Well, interestingly enough, just as we can administer a breathalyzer test for someone to find out whether they've been drinking a little too much, uh, I can also, we can also analyze, or, uh, apply a breathalyzer test for a person who is busy and, and hurried all the time. Uh, you can smell alcohol in a person's breath, and you can also hear busyness and hurry on people's lips. One way to tell whether you're always hurried and busy is to basically uh, give yourself this test. <clears throat> Are these words on your breath or even under your breath? Things like, I am so busy. I am tired. Man, it's just life is like relentless. Or words like, I am just simply out of time. Or when a person asks you to do something, I just don't have time for that. If these are words that are on your lips in a constant pattern of life, then you have probably been captivated and simply intoxicated by busyness and hurry. Now, there are times in life when things get incredibly busy and difficult, and they're just kind of small patterns. Uh, maybe it's only for a week or maybe even a month. But when this is a regular pattern of life, it begins to move us away from God. I so we want to be very careful to rid ourselves of busyness and hurry. Now, at this point, I want to kind of uh, entertain a little objection to what I'm saying. It made me thinking, well, you know, the reason why I'm busy, I'm in a hurry, is I simply don't want to be lazy. Uh, that I'm simply trying to avoid laziness by doing all these activities. Well, the Bible doesn't say a lot about haste and busyness, but it actually has quite a bit to say about laziness. And as it turns out, laziness, if we read the Bible, or, uh, excuse me, the busyness is actually a form of laziness. Shocker. Uh, we're going to look at the book of Proverbs here in a moment and just see a few qualities of the lazy person. And we'll see that these same qualities could simply be applied to the busy person. Look, if you will, in Proverbs chapter 6. The book of Proverbs was written by an incredibly a wise man named Solomon. And he gives us instruction in many areas of our life, including the area of laziness and how to conduct our life. Proverbs chapter 6 and verse 6. Uh, the writer of Proverbs, uh, Solomon, gives advice to the person who is lazy. Now, if laziness were simply inactivity... That means if laziness was simply doing nothing, 
then here in Proverbs, the writer of Psalm would say, if you're lazy, get off your butt and do something. Just do something, even if it's wrong, right? But the, the writer of uh, Proverbs doesn't simply say that. That, in it, that laziness isn't simply doing nothing. That laziness is of a different sort. So let's look here in verse 6. Proverbs 6, 6. The writer says, Go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider its ways and be wise. So, of course, the first piece of advice we see here is that the sluggard, the lazy person, should actually consider and look at the ant. Now, what is it about the ant that's so important? Verse 7, it has no commander and no overseer or ruler, yet it stores its provisions in summer and gathers its food at harvest. So we see the important thing about the ant is that the ant isn't just kind of a beehive of activity. It's not like the bee that's continually flying around. But the ant is purposeful. It has no overseer commander. So there's no one telling the ant what to do. But the ant has purpose. And this specific ant that he's talking about here is the harvester ant. This ant goes out during harvest time and he gathers the food. Only during harvest, after harvest is over and also during the summertime, he actually stores the food. So this ant is really only engaged in two activities. He gathers and he stores. And he does it at its proper time, during harvest and also during the summer as well. So the cure for laziness is not simply activity. It's not doing things, but it's being purposeful. Now, unfortunately, a lot of busy people simply lack purpose. The reason why they feel, fill their schedules with activities is because they just simply don't know how to choose between what to do and what not to do. Uh, there's an old French proverb that says, if a man who has nothing to do is always the busiest. The person who doesn't know what they need to be doing at the time just simply fills it with this unending list of things to do. And so business can often be simply a form of laziness. Let's see another quality of the, of the lazy person and see how this also fits in with the busy. Look at uh, Proverbs chapter 26 and verse 14. says, As a door turns on its hinges, so a sluggard turns on his bed. Kind of an interesting image there, right? You can kind of imagine the sluggard, the lazy person, lying there on his bed, maybe tossing and turning, essentially doing nothing. And he compares this lazy person as being a door on its hinge. Uh, Essentially, no matter what you try to do, this sluggard is not going to get up. He's stuck to the bed. He's hinged to it. It's almost as if he's shackled there. He may flip around a little bit. That's all that happens. Now, a busy person is often the same way. And we saw in the Good Samaritan, uh, uh, the Good Samaritan experiment that the, uh, the hurried person is basically locked in onto their activity. They are hinged to the commitments they have made, and they will not be deterred. Uh, no matter what comes along, they are latched into it. So busyness can often be the same as the laziness. There's this fixity about them that can't be moved. Now we can look at other passages as well. Uh, In Proverbs 21.5, I won't read that here, but basically it tells us a bit about haste, which is really the only passage in the Bible that I'm aware of that talks about hurry. And it simply says that haste leads to poverty. And we can see why that is if a person who's hasty basically has their IQ lowered a few notches. They're not thinking clearly. Uh, They're numb to the things around them. 
they're eventually just kind of, kind of run into an impoverished and, and, and lo- and, uh, situation where they lose their wealth and they re- lose their relationships with other people. But we also see in Proverbs 6, uh, verse 11, that the lazy person, their end is also poverty. So we see both the lazy person and the busy person both end their life in poverty. So busyness and laziness are simply the same thing. Are, uh, just simply, Busyness is simply a form of laziness. <clears throat> so what's the solution here? Is it just to simply do nothing? Or uh, how do we decide what to do? How do we eliminate hurry, but yet still meet the demands of our life? Well, I think a great example of this is the person of Jesus Christ. He was a man who lived with purpose in all of his activities. When you read the New Testament, when you read um, uh, the Gospels, you never get the sense that Jesus was simply in a hurry or busy, but he chose each and every one of his activities very carefully. And we're given the, uh, the secret to Jesus' pur- purposefulness in two different passages, really. In John chapter 17, verse 4, and also in John 8, 28 and 29. And in both of these passages, we see Jesus exclaiming, in, in 17.4, uh, Jesus is about to die. He's about to go to the cross. Uh, he has healed many people. But he prays to his Father in heaven and says, I have completed the work that you have given me to do. Now, even though there were still many more people to be healed from diseases, there were still many more people on the earth had never heard about him, yet Jesus still felt like his work was complete. And the reason why is because he simply did what his father asked him to do. He didn't feel the need or the demand to do everything, but simply to follow the guidance of his father. So the solution to busyness and hurry, but yet still to live a productive life, is to listen to what our father will have us to do. Uh, when we rid ourselves of hurry, we're more capable of listening very carefully to the guidance that God has given us. So let me kind of just give you some practical steps on how to eliminate busyness and hurry. How to eliminate this greatest threat to our spiritual lives today. How can we do this? The first thing to do is to pattern your life and work after the the pattern that God has given to us. In Genesis chapter 1 and and also in chapter 2, we see that God made the heavens and the earth in six days, and on the seventh day, he rested from his work. Which, by the way, is another reason to think that laziness isn't just simply doing nothing, because if that were true, then Jesus would have, or, that God would have simply been lazy on the seventh day. But obviously, that's not the case, that God rested. So if we truly want to eliminate business and hurry, then we will carve out one day of a week simply to rest. Now, how do you decide what you can and can't do? Uh, I'm not saying this is a, a, a law or a rule. Uh, I'm not sh- saying you should uh, follow this as if it were something that was commanded. But I'm just saying to engage in it as if it's the wisest course of action to take. But how do we know what we should and shouldn't do? I think the best question to ask of anything you do is this. Am I attempting to accomplish something today? Am I attempting to accomplish something or to try to get ahead on the Sabbath or on the day that I set aside as such? If the answer is yes, then you probably haven't quite rested. To rest means to cease from work, cease from uh, uh, um, activity. The word Sabbath itself actually means cessation, to stop working. And if we were to simply take one day of the week to cease from our work and instead uh, 
simply worship our Father to reflect on the week and the accomplishments that he's made in our life, it will go a long way to eliminate hurry and busyness that numbs us from being able to listen to God. It's also a great day of the week to simply pray and spend time listening to God. The second thing I would suggest to do is not simply to carve out a Sabbath, but the second thing is to carve out commitments to your family. For those of you who are married or have children, you know that God has given you one purpose, or at least one purpose, and that is to care for your family, which involves not only providing for them, but just spending time with them as well, spending uninterrupted time with them. So maybe you'll take just one uh, evening out of the week, maybe a Friday evening, that you'll purpose to not allow any work or activity to impinge upon your time with your family. So if, even if someone were to ask you to do something, you could just tell them that you already have a prior commitment, that you have committed to what your father has already given you to do. So simply doing that will help to enrich your relationship with your wife and also with your children and also to enrich uh, your relationship with God as well. So those are two practicals. The third one I'll give you here is to learn to spend time in solitude. Now this is something that most of us, or definitely our world, uh, doesn't see of great value. But to learn to spend time basically doing nothing uh, here's a challenge for you. Uh, maybe choose a Sabbath or, you know, with a day that you designate as your Sabbath or whatever, and just simply sit for five minutes doing absolutely nothing. Now, that is going to be a huge stretch for most of us. But what this will do is will train you to be able to be inactive, <laughs> to stop doing and simply listen. So just take five minutes and just decide I will do absolutely nothing. I will spend time in solitude, not talking, uh, you know, whatever the things you may creatively think about doing at a time. You know, you're not going to be planning your day, um, but just simply do nothing. Uh, Jesus was incredibly uh, skilled at this. We see in the book of Mark that he would often spend time in solitude on his own. He would pray and also have time away. And that was probably one of the main secrets to Jesus' ability to do when things need to be done, and to refrain when it was time to refrain. So spend just uh, five minutes in solitude in order to kind of train your muscles uh, to be inactive. Now, what's so important about eliminating busyness and hurry? Well, we obviously know that we want to, we want to uh, develop this stronger relationship with God. But when we allow this hurry and busyness to be carved out of our life, when we decide to say no to commitments uh, that will just continually keep us her, uh, busy, it also allows this beautiful uh, brilliance and value that God has put, us, put in us uh, to be available and seen by all. Let me kind of make, give you an analogy here. Uh, in 1905, someone discovered what was at, at that time, the, or actually still at this time, was the largest uncut diamond in the world. Uh, when they found this diamond, it was over 3,000 carats, 3,106.75 to be exact, which is over one pound. Now, the person who discovered the, this uh, diamond decided that he would give it as a gift to King Edward VII of England, just kind of as a way of, hey, we want to uh, have better relationships with you. So here's this great gift of you know, the largest diamond in the world. So King Edward took the diamond uh, and it was quite ordinary looking. I don't know if you've ever seen an uncut diamond, but they are simply, uh, they almost just look like a rock or something. <laughs> As in fact, I'm sure there's no one here that has an engagement ring with an uncut diamond because they're, they're simply just not very beautiful. 
Uh, and later on, King Edward uh, was commenting on the ordinariness of this, you know, this fabulous diamond. And he said that if it had been found on the side of the road, if he'd been walking along and seen it, he would have just kicked it. <laughs> you know, that's, that's how much value he saw in it. But yet it was after taking the uncut diamond and taking it to a diamond cutter, that the diamond cutter is able to take that stone and cut it and polish it and remove the outer layer, that that diamond has this incredible brilliance. The light shines through it. And that diamond now, today, appears within the crown jewels of England. If you've ever been there to, uh, to see the crown jewels, uh, you'll see it right there, both in the scepter and also in the crown. Now, God is the master diamond cutter. And he wants each and one of our lives to be rid of the clutter of busyness and hurry. He wants to eliminate this hurry so that the great uh, light and the brilliance of God's love can shine through in our life. Uh, Matthew says that we should let our light so shine before men that they will see our good deeds and worship our Father in heaven. When we eliminate clutter, uh, the clutter of busyness and hurry, we can allow God's great and brilliant light to shine through our life. Bow with me in prayer. Lord, we thank you so much for your great love for us. We thank you, Lord, that you have guided us uh, through your scriptures to know what it takes to have just a deeper and a richer relationship with you. Lord, I know it is within our culture and within our world to try to achieve at whatever cost to be busy and hurried. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see very clearly uh, the beauty and the value that you've in each of us. Well, I pray that you would make us into that beautiful cut diamond that would be able to uh, bring forth your love and for all the world to see that our good deeds wouldn't just be out of exhaustion of time and energy, but out of a great creativity that you've given us. Lord, we thank you so much for your many blessings, and we thank you for this morning to be able to worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.